You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. ISIS claims responsibility for the Sri Lankan bombings. The government maintains its declared state of emergency and has arrested at least 40 in the course of its investigation. Checkpoint describes a spearfishing campaign against embassies in Europe. It's thought to be the work of the Russian mob. Weak keys let the blockchain bandit rifle altcoin wallets. And a disgruntled bug hunter doxes one of Mexico's embassies. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, April 23rd, 2019. ISIS has claimed responsibility for the Easter massacres in Sri Lanka. A statement published by the jihadist organization's news agency Amok says the bombings were retaliation for last month's massacre of Muslims at a New Zealand mosque and were intended to kill Christians. Sri Lankan authorities, who continue their social media crackdown during a declared state of emergency, continue to believe the attacks were the work of local jihadists acting with foreign support. The death toll has now reached 321. Sri Lanka's decision to block social media is being read by many, the Washington Post among them, as another instance of growing distrust in big tech. They cite the inability of algorithms to keep pace with the number of people who wish to, and did, share the attacker's video of the massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, as of a piece with Sri Lanka's crackdown. But this isn't as clear-cut a matter as much opinion would have it. Sri Lanka's action is more like a government in the late 19th or early to mid-20th century shutting down newspapers during times of emergency. The government is concerned about inflammatory posts that could feed further immediate violence, not about social networks' inherent untrustworthiness. As Facebook pointed out, quietly, people rely on our services to communicate with their loved ones, and we are committed to maintaining our services and helping the community and the country during this tragic time. Facebook, in this case, has a point, and the Sri Lankan government has legitimate counter-concerns. Social media users have driven violent mass behavior, in South Asia especially, far too often in recent years, and that's the immediate concern here. It's not clear what role online communication played in coordinating the attacks, but the government doesn't want a mass murder to turn into mass rioting. The number of arrests made so far in the case is said to have reached about 40. Researchers at Checkpoint describe a targeted spearfishing attack against government finance authorities and embassies in Europe. 
The hackers appear to be Russian, and they appear to be criminals, although that's a tougher call given the growing penetration of the Russian mob by the Russian security organs. The campaign used malicious Excel files marked implausibly as if they were from the U.S. State Department. The payload was a weaponized version of TeamViewer, capable of taking screenshots of infected systems. One of the gang members, who goes by the name Eva Pix, was active on a hacking and carding forum, The Verge Notes, talking about the attack and offering advice to others who might wish to do likewise. This alone suggests that a criminal, as opposed to a state actor, is responsible. The campaign has received surprisingly high reviews for the convincing quality of its work, but we're not so sure. The subject line was military financing program. Marking a spreadsheet top secret, splashing some U.S. State Department logos all over it, and then shooting the stuff around by email with an invitation to click now, click now, 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 seems a come-on more designed for NAFES than for diplomatic sophisticates. But we have to admit we like the touch that the attachment represents itself as GSA Form 1566, Revision 9-74, which is the current top-secret control sheet. The State Department watermark is just gravy. A close reading of the fishbait would, however, reveal that the workbook title is in Russian, Zapros Undin, or Request 1, which isn't exactly how they'd express it at Foggy Bottom, especially not in Cyrillic characters. The verbiage on the bogus Form 1566 would also strike experienced textual critics of the General Services Administration canon as wayward. It says... The attached material contains secret information which bears directly upon the effectiveness of conduct of foreign relations, which reads a little like someone shoehorning Russian into an English sentence. It goes on in a bold-faced screamer, To display data in document, click Enable Editing and enable content on the protected view bar. And the instructions close, sinking in prose with, as such, the attached material deserves special care in its handling, custody, and storage as required by the information security. The information security would advise not touching this with the proverbial ten-foot pole. In fairness to Eva Pix and company, judging from Checkpoint's analysis, they did seem to put in the work as far as the attack chain is concerned. And indeed, while more recipients than one would like to believe did indeed click now, 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 Others at once rightly bonged it to the spam folder. Good awareness, Italy and Kenya, two countries at least where the diplomatic staff seem to be paying attention. NYIT is the New York Institute of Technology, a not-for-profit university headquartered in New York. Their College of Engineering and Computing Sciences is hosting a Girls in Engineering and Technology Day this coming May 4th at their Long Island campus. Mariam Romani is a technology consultant who's helping run the event, and she joins us to share why STEM-focused events targeting young women matter. The program is focused on high school girls, sophomore, juniors. Um, you know, by the senior year, you could say they've already decided, uh, you know, where to go. But the important thing is, how do we reach these um, high schoolers to be interested to look into STEM programs. Often you see that they are very strong in math and uh, physics and biology and other science-related courses, but somehow by the time they end up in uh, colleges, 
they don't even uh, pursue these types of degrees, whether it's uh, engineering, computer science, or, or other STEM related. And so we felt that by providing them an opportunity to see women that have studied engineering and have had marvelous career track, as well as having an ability to see what each uh, major offers, and also even get to play around with uh, hands-on workshops without having any previous experience, as an example, with cybersecurity, with drone or coding, that potentially would be uh, triggering their interest and excite them to look into STEM programs, whether at NYIT or beyond. Now, do you think that uh, providing this sort of environment where the girls get to speak to other girls and other women, does that provide them with insights that they wouldn't get at a, at a regular tech event where there were both boys and girls there? So that's a very good question, Dave. Yeah, so I believe that... Um, Girls will be um, very comfortable in an environment with their peers that they can really just focus and imagine what would it be for me? Would I ever be like that lady that is a keynote? Can I reach to those uh, levels? It would be less distraction. It's a program that is completely dedicated for them, and they will have an opportunity to um, not feel um, that, oh, my gosh, I may not have the experience that my uh, male peer may have, for instance, with coding or something else. And absolutely, without having any previous experience, they just get to really just be curious and try something and not feel that they're being uh, sort of compared um, so I feel that the, the environment uh, would really um, encourage them. And one of the tags that uh, uh, I guess NYIT uses um, for this particular event is see her, be her. I think that's very important. I often think of my own 15-year-old uh, daughter, and I think it's so important for these girls to be able to look at women like myself and have a face for what we look like, that we are not like some, um, you know, stereotypes that are sometimes shown, whether in information security, whether in other aspects of engineering, that academic career really prepares us to be thinkers and innovators and have the skills that the, um, our country so badly needs for the future, for its security and uh, for its competitiveness. So that's really uh, what I believe in, uh, you know, sort of programs like this provides uh, these young ladies uh, to be able to experience all in one day. That's Mariam Romani. The event is at NYIT. It's Girls in Engineering and Technology Day, coming up May 4th, 2019. If it's the blockchain, it's got to be secure, right? Well, not necessarily. Researchers at the firm Independent Security Consultants grew curious of what might happen if, instead of using an effectively unguessable 78-digit key to their wallet, a cryptocurrency user decided to say smack it with... Oh, something easy like the number one. They looked and found that a lot of altcoin traders were doing just that. And they found, moreover, that someone they're calling the blockchain bandit had got there first and made off with the coin such wallets contained. In fairness to the users, we note that not every weak key is as easily guessable as one. And the silver lining to the theft, if there can be said to be one, 
is that Bitcoin bandit probably lost most his or her shirt when the altcoin speculative bubble deflated last year. A disgruntled bug hunter has released documents taken from a server in Mexico's Guatemala embassy. He told TechCrunch he expected a reply, and when he doesn't get a reply, then it's going public. So there. The doxing included many identity documents, passports, visas, and so on. Much of it had markings indicating that it was confidential or sensitive, but that seems to have indicated for the most part that the data were private and not that they represented state secrets. Anywho, the hacker has since explained his motives. On his Twitter timeline overnight, he said, I am an idiot, and who are we to disagree? Know thyself. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, it's great to have you back. Uh, we wanted to touch today on preserving evidence when a cyber attack happens. What can you share with us today? Well, what I can share with you is the first thing that many organizations make a mistake in is actually destroying the evidence, thinking they're doing the right thing. They they have patient zero. Uh, it has some sort of malware or an adversary uh, on it that that has appeared within their sim, and the first thing that people want to do is is say, "Well, let's let's go reimage that box." And hmm. and reimaging is absolutely the wrong thing to do because you absolutely don't know how the adversary got on there. You don't know what they've stolen or grabbed, and you also don't know if the adversary has moved laterally off of there or if they have uh, secondary or tertiary. Uh, persistence mechanism. So the first thing that we tell our clients to do is hibernate the system. Don't put it to sleep. Don't shut it down. Don't disconnect it from the network. I mean, disconnecting from the network, from the physical network is absolutely okay. But 
but make sure that you hibernate the system. That hmm. ensures that the running memory is preserved and actually, from a technical perspective, it writes it to disk so that when we do digital forensics on it, we get to see the full picture, which is both the, uh, the memory, which has very valuable bits of information with what the adversary has done since last reboot, as well as the disk in order to do the analysis. I could see someone's first impulse to be that something's gone wrong. Let's just walk around and pull the plug. <laughs> Uh, that is, that's actually, uh, uh, pulling the plug is probably uh, okay, but when you do that, you never know if there's an encryption routine running or if there's something else that could be inadvertently interrupted. So what you want to do is, uh, is if you do pull the plug, if it's a hardwired connection, absolutely follow up with a hibernate directly following. I see. What about in terms of, of folks who may have to preserve things uh, for regulatory reasons? Well, from a regulatory perspective, you want to focus on uh, the machines or the systems that matter. Let's say you're hit with a widespread ransomware attack and 4,000 of your 5,000 machines have been affected. You clearly don't want to go forensically image 4,000 systems. That would be hmm. uh, that would take up a lot of disk space and take up a lot of time. But it, you want to focus on uh, material systems that are pertinent to the investigation. Regulators want to see how they got in how they escalated privileges, how they moved laterally, and what they took and or what they got. So sometimes that's actually not forensic data. Sometimes it's actually log data that you can save off and keep to the side so that when you are audited or you are working with regulators, you can actually paint them a full picture. And in incident response terms, what you want to be developing is a timeline. On Monday, the adversary sent a phishing attack. On Tuesday, Allison clicked on the link on Wednesday, they were able to move laterally and they took this information. So when you show this to the regulator, you want to show a, a very complete timeline with as much perspective information as possible while not going completely overboard and inundating them with information. Is, is there a natural tension that comes into play here where you know folks want to get back up and running, they've got business to do, uh, and we've got this machine sitting there in hibernation mode uh, and time's a-wasting? Yeah, the number one priority for my clients, Dave, is how do we get back to doing the business that we do? Collecting revenue, communicating with customers, dealing with patients. And the answer is, uh, particularly for some of these larger attacks or the more dangerous uh, ransomware, you really want to find out how the adversary or the threat got into the network before you start standing everything back up. For a few reasons. First is you don't know if the adversary has a secondary or tertiary backgrounds. Many of the attackers out there, they want the ability to persist if you find one of their legs of persistence, in other words. So it's, it's a very standard practice to see them use uh, one type of malware to persist, and then there's a backup that no one ever really realized out there on the perimeter or the edge. Uh, the hmm. second thing to take into consideration with restoring services is you also don't know the dwell time. I think that uh, the jury is still out for the average of dwell time. Some some vendors put it at sub 100 days. Some vendors put it at over 200 days. Let's just pick the average. Let's pick 150 days of average time that an adversary, once they've compromised an organization, how long they get free reign to do whatever they want. So when you're running this case and you want to get back to operations, how do you know that the adversary hasn't already been implanted themselves within the backups inadvertently? Meaning Monday, 
the adversary got in on Tuesday, the backup ran, and you discovered on Friday, well, let's go back to Tuesday's backup. Well, that wouldn't do very much good because the adversary, you're just basically reinstalling the adversary with their with their tools. So you really need to have a good idea of how the adversary got in, how they're persisting in order to close those loopholes off before restoring services. Hmm. All right. Well, Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.